It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We'll take a look at the security news. Fortunately, no big panics. But there is a great uh, series of questions, 10 of them from you. Steve will answer. We'll talk more about key escrow and more with Security Now next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 492, recorded January 27th, 2015. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 205. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code security now and you'll get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for security now. The show that protects you and your loved ones and your security and your privacy online with the guy who knows all, tells all. He has a crystal ball. Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC. Kissing my, kissing my microphone. It's like right here in my why face. Are you, why are you like, kissing it? Are you happy? Uh, Ah, I'm happy. Yeah. Hi, Steve. Hi. Hey, Leo. It's great to be with you again. Nice As to meet you. always in our 10th year of this weekly podcast. Jiminy Christmas. Um, Holy we finally do have a Q&A since the world has left us alone. It's really been actually kind of quiet on a secu- on the security front. There were a couple stories that just broke as I I've been already had set up the podcast and made PDFs of notes and things. So, uh, for example, there's a ghost vulnerability uh, that's just been just just uh, was published in a in something called Open Wall that looks like it may have remote exploitation capabilities. So we'll cover that next week. I didn't want to, like, you know, run around and go crazy. Uh, ghost is an open last- source firewall program. Ghost actually is the name of the vulnerability. You know, we have to give oh. them good, catchy names now. So right. it's, uh, yeah, open, that's Open wall. That. What's it called? Open? O- o- open wall. Open wall. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, so we have a Q&A, and I'm assuming that things are going to stay quiet, and we will finally next week uh, discuss the de-anonymization of Tor and uh, what that's all about. I've been calling that detour and promising it for quite a while, but we keep having, you know, holidays and New Year's and, and you know, the Enigma Machine podcast that was very popular. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll catch up with a, with a Q&A this week. Uh, a little bit of news, not too much actually has happened, uh, but some interesting stuff. And then, uh, and we have, uh, I don't know, great questions and, and some interesting points brought up by our listeners. So uh, we, uh, I'm going to talk about a, a new marketplace that's open for Firefox, uh, Google, uh, taking a bite out of Apple also. Um, and I heard you guys talking on MacBreak weekly about some recent, uh, Apple updates that I also cover, uh, and a note about, uh, Tim Cook and China. Um, and I also heard you mention, uh, Vivaldi, which I had yeah. a note here about. Yeah. Um, and then, uh. And I, and I wanted to make a note to our listeners about the uh, 10th Annual Podcast Awards. They're not getting by me this year. I thought, let's 
just swamp them. Let's show them what crowd power can do. So, uh, anyway, yeah, so I'm not a big fan part. of the podcast awards, but if you wish to win one, you go right ahead. I like having them. Why not? Yeah. We, so, one year, uh, one year, we won a significant number of them, and they removed us they were for uh, re- political reasons. So I'm not. I just ignore them. Now. No kidding. Yeah. You can win and not get an award. So good luck. Good luck with that. Wow. Actually, wow. if everybody voted for security now, uh, in any ca- in every hard. possible it category, it'd be hard to ignore you, right? It would be hard yeah. to ignore. Yeah, I think I figure um, security tech. Wait, I don't. I don't think there was security. There was technology. Oh, science and technology and education. Um, although I don't know, really, we're not an edu- well, we are on an educational podcast, but we're not a podcast about education. So I don't know if there are podcasts about education, if that's what they mean. But yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm, boy- uh, I'm boycotting them. This, this from somebody uh, tweeted, yeah, uh, that a new item had appeared under the tools menu of Firefox, and I I was at Firefox version 35, so I, I first went to help. And it said, oh, they, you know, restart for an update. And I was like, oh, okay. So I got a, you know, I got a 1,000th update or 1 millionth or something. Anyway, I went up from 35 to 35.0.1. So hardly worth restarting. But sure enough, on the tools menu is a new apps item, which simply takes you to marketplace.firefox.com. Which is uh, Mozilla's, you know, marketplace for Firefox stuff. Uh, so it's a store that has lots of free stuff and also some for purchase, uh, featuring apps designed for any device that runs either the Firefox OS or Firefox for Android or Firefox on any desktop. Um, and they just say that it makes finding favorites or new apps easy. Um, and once purchased, you are able to use it across all of your Firefox devices and platforms. So, uh, you know, I'm sort of like in the iOS model. So, anyway, I just wanted to point people at that. I'm still, until Chrome solves the tabs problem, I am still over on Firefox. And and actually the footprint problem, when I, when I launch uh, Chrome, it just, gobbles memory um uh, compared to firefox so i it's, i'm still i'm still there over on firefox and uh and and happy with 200 and some odd tabs open so <clears throat> yeah i sort of use it as my <laughs> it's like my messy bedroom of stuff that i want to get to i i have tabs open from from reference material that i was using when working on spinrite 6.1 so that gives you a sense for, you know, Squirrel took over and we're now like at T plus 15 months of the Squirrel project. So those are they're, they're, those are dusty tabs. But, you know, Firefox is holding them open and, and knowing that I'm going to get back to them as soon as I get Squirrel wrapped. Uh, and in fact, I, I heard you meant talking about Squirrel uh, over the weekend. A caller to your tech yeah. guy show. Uh, asked about it and I just wanted so I'll just you know you and I will go back through this I will soon be demonstrating it he wanted um, as 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 many have to understand how how it would look how it would work from an end user's uh perspective yeah. and I ha- and I have to say I'm still a little bit unclear about it too I hope I didn't get it wrong no it's um well, the one thing that's neat is that you need no browser extensions or plugins um so you just run the squirrel client once on your desktop 
and that registers it to receive any any SQRL URLs. And then every browser you have automatically works. So you and you don't need a smartphone, you don't need a QR code, you but you 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 can just click on the QR code which the website presents in case you wanted to use a smartphone, but if you're on a desktop, you just click on the QR code and you're logged in. Up pops a little dialog from the client that makes that to that, that makes that uh, is there to make sure, you know, you're you and not one of your kids or 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 somebody, you know, uh, there's this new term that I hate. It's, it's a it's called the evil maid attack. In fact, you know the whole the whole problem with with um, uh, Thunderstrike uh, and Thunderbolt on the Apple is they've designated this an evil maid attack, meaning that it's an attack that an evil house cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> could could accomplish. It's like, oh, do we really have to call it the evil maid? But I think it's I, tongue in cheek. But I, but you know, that's, I, yeah. No, it's like so. It's I did the misstate it a little bit. So I, what I didn't understand is, so if you run the app on your uh, computer, it registers. Is it SQRL colon slash slash? Yeah, it yeah. registers a protocol for Squirrel. I think that's not commonly known. Is that there are many different protocols besides http colon backslash the, the the famous one is mail to right. you know you mail can have to. a mail right. to link and that launches your email client with like oftentimes the subject and the and and the to and from and so forth filled in so if you have this you download an app you run it, it i presume it, it generates kind of a unique uh you you user id for you Right? Is that what it yeah, does? And then exactly. it registers the uh, the protocol, the SQRL protocol. You have to keep the app on there, or can you at that point delete the app? No, the app is there to... I think on most to, operating systems, you have to, because it has to run when you... Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and and so it, it sits in the tray uh, as a little icon, and if and you so you create an identity the first time you run it, and what's... I mean, and, and the... It's it's sort of the thing where you have to see it to believe it. I I mean the demo has been running. I have it down at the moment while I'm rewriting a chunk of code. But but users in our news group have been playing with it for about a maybe about a week and a half. And one person wrote. He said, you know, Steve, I knew what this was. I knew what it was going to be. But it's it takes my breath away to imagine that something this simple is also secure because. That identity you create can potentially be the only identity you ever need for the rest of your life, and it just allows you to log in. So, uh, and of course, you know you're right that the question is, will this get adopted? Uh, there was a great blog uh, posting that came to my attention yesterday that'll go public on Thursday, where people are beginning to look at this and and get it and so you know i you know my position was with this concept i just had to give it a chance i have no horse in the race i'm not making any money you know as 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 you as you as you did say yesterday um to, uh, to that caller i just i just couldn't have this and not give it a chance i mean it blows fido away the guy who designed fido said squirrel blows it away so we'll see, you know, uh, anyway, it, just, it, it requires, and, and this is what I said, it requires, unfortunately, companies with their own stake in all of this, unlike you, 
to adopt it. I mean, if Google and, and Yahoo and Facebook don't adopt it and they all have their own kind of – well, not Yahoo, yep. but Google and Facebook have their own ado- you know authentication stuff they want to do, then it makes it hard for it to succeed. But I guess a ton of independent websites could adopt it. There's no reason – I've already – Already got queries coming from independent websites. Yeah. We've got we've got a group who have a have have, have a full uh, Drupal uh, drop-in library, so that any Drupal site can just add this side by side. The idea is that it doesn't replace username and password; it just sits next to it. And and so there are my the way I have felt this would happen is that there are so many sites where. They would like you to create an account, but they're just not worth it to the user. How many times have we looked at like, you know, seen somebody's blog posting and gone to reply and it wants you to create an account? It's like you, you email address and, and all that. And you just think, no, I've got too many accounts. I don't want to have to come up with another password and username and blah, blah, blah. So that kind of site or all of those kinds of sites like WordPress um, – could simply make Squirrel be an option, and what you happens go, oh. if I've, I've done that with that site, and then I want to go to it on mobile? How does that get solved? Um, the identity is transportable. So, for example, on my client, you can display your identity as a QR code, and then snap it with either the Android or the iOS client, and that transfers your your one identity onto your mobile device or devices. And then, then, um, that so that same identity can then be used to log in there, and so so I mean it's it is multi-platform and and universal. You'd have to have that Squirrel client on your mobile device, or no? What is Correct. The, what is the mechanism on mobile? Because I don't think you have. Do you have that protocol mechanism on mobile? Yeah, it's you all do. there. So if you, uh, and, if you go to a site that you've previously registered a squirrel id with this you go there you see the qr code that says use squirrel you tap that and then it will launch the program and it will go back to the squirrel the thing and that works on ios so so yes and but there's two ways on a mobile so if you're so if you're the the the, the term i have is same device login or cross device login so say that you're at a hostel kiosk or like, you know, you're at a, at a hotel, uh, you know, executive lounge where they make some PCs available and you want to log in to your Southwest Airlines account. Well, the last thing you want to do is put your credentials into this, this you know, alien PC that you have no control over. So if Southwest adopted Squirrel, then the, their law, the Southwest login would simply have a little QR code next to it. So you would use your, your phone with the Squirrel app to snap that QR code. And with doing nothing else, you are logged in on that PC without entering any credentials. It, the page changes and it says, oh, hi, Steve. Hi, Leo. Um, and, and, you know, what, what do you want to do? So... So your phone uses the the QR code to identify the 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 page that you're looking at on the computer where you are and then it transacts with the website to to assert and verify your identity 
And then the website says, okay, we now know who is looking at that login page for Southwest and you're logged in. So, I mean, anyway, it's sort of the, you have to sort of see it to believe it. It's like, holy crap. And it's, you know, the crypto is solid. So anyway, I, we'll, we'll, I'll, we'll, you and I will do a demo. We'll go through this in a couple of weeks. That's cool. You have a chance to use your brand new Dell uh, X, XP, whatever it, it comes. is. It February 5th. Yeah. I'm still a week off. <laughs> okay, cool. So um, uh, uh, Google has I, – I did some more digging into Project Zero. We, we talked about it back in July when they announced it. And I remember we covered it on the podcast because when I was reading their announcement blog entry, I thought, oh, yeah, this is all familiar. We, we did this on the podcast. But what's interesting is nowhere in there do they say we're starting a 90-day timer anytime we discover something. We notify, you know, they do say, yeah, yeah, that came as a surprise. So, you know, they do say that we will only notify the vendor of the software in whose uh, products we find a problem. Um, and they assert that the goal is to increase the security of online stuff. Um, and I, and I did in in digging around, there was an example of a cross-side scripting vulnerability that Google found in their own stuff, which they fixed in, I think I had the number I have in my mind is like 17 days from the time it was found to the time it was fixed. So, you know, comfortably less than 90, um, but the way this actually rolled out was that, as we have discussed, uh, you know, because because Microsoft has been caught by this a few times, Google sets starts a ninety day timer when they inform the vendor, and the exploit goes public ninety days later. So, the 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 way to think about this is that this is just sort of this all fits the pattern we're seeing Google adopt. Google has taken the position that. Nobody is going to fix things without being forced to. Thus, the whole, you know, 2015 SHA-1, you know, website certificate problem where where Chrome is going to start, you know, prematurely warning people that websites have certificates still using SHA-1 signatures. Even though there's nothing wrong with that, you know, it's like, okay, we're just going to push this so that it absolutely has been resolved by 2017 when Microsoft has decided they will they will no longer honor uh, certificates that are so signed. So essentially two years ahead. And, you know, the other things that, that Google are doing. And so this just sort of fits that. It's like, yes, we want, you know, we're going to really tighten the thumb screws. And, and you know, the, the point I made last week was that this does, it, it, it's a little tighter for Microsoft because a fixed 90 days, ha- you know, has to mesh with their 30-day window of opportunity, you know, every 30-day patches. And if it just if, – if they miss it by a day, then they have a potential exposure of, of 30 days. But, you know, but, you know because – Unless Microsoft, unless it's bad enough that Microsoft is forced then to do an out of cycle patch, um, they'd really rather 
have it fall on, on, on their calendar schedule. And so, you know, in, in, in digging around in this, I saw, other, you know, other people noting that, you know, this does create a dilemma for sort of the, the offline style updating where, you know, Google has this sort of, you know, on the fly Chrome is updating. I know that I've always got a process now running in my machine looking for updates uh, to Chrome because it just it's running in the background all the time. Well, that's not the way Windows has been as set up to handle updates. And arguably, the Chrome model is different than the desktop OS model. And, you know, you look at the Chrome OS model or the Google OS model, and then, you know, and here we have Android um, 4.3 and older that apparently not going to get updated with really bad problems. So, you know, there's a little bit of a glass house sort of phenomenon here where, where, where Google is, is, is in, you know, using the network to update the things that are easy to update on the network, but holding everybody else to a standard that, uh, you know, you could argue they're not um, meeting. So anyway, the, the good news is these three zero-day, unquote, vulnerabilities that, um, that Apple had not patched by the time the 90-day clock expired. Um, Apple was informed on October 20th, the 21st, and the 23rd about um, problems number 130, 135, and 136. Google just numbers these things sequentially. And so 90 days later, on January 20th, 21st, and 23rd, they went public um, per this schedule. And, uh, and so what we do know, and, and, I, and I, I missed the comment on MacBreak Weekly, apparently OS 10 version 10.10.2 is like in beta, just getting ready to no, no, happen. No, it I, just came out today. Oh, it did? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yes, that, 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 that's what I wanted to ask, what, yeah. was whether no, that had happened. Yeah. Good. So what that does, it, it fixes, as far as we know, the Thunderstrike vulnerability, which is there, unfortunately, we're calling at the evil maid <laughs> access <laughs> vulnerability, because the idea being that somebody with physical access to your machine could could use the Thunderbolt interface much as they could have always previously used um, the Firewire. We talked about how that that is a, you know, Firewire is a DMA level access and Thunderbolt gives that same kind of access. Although there are security, security controls that Apple has probably now brought to bear or done some other mitigations. And we also believed that this fix would fix the Google Project Zero vulnerabilities, 130, 135, and 136. So although I, I, the point I was going to make was that even though there was a window of exploitability, they weren't serious zero days. You, they were only exploitable if you already had code running on that machine. And if you have that, then it's like, well, okay, you know, the horses are out of the barn. So uh it wasn't a big problem, and Apple has probably now closed it. Um, and there is, I did also heard you note on MacBreak Weekly, but I'll say to our listeners, a new iOS update, 8.1.3. And I'm hoping it does actually make iOS 8 more stable because 
Yeah, it's a constant source of annoyance. They're getting me. there, bit by inch, by inch, yeah. <laughs> bit by bit. Yeah. By yeah. the way, I, I, it's not germane to this show, but it, I just was handed the Apple uh, earnings reports and Mac sales. Uh, we're up 14%. iPhone sales up 46%. iPad sales down 18%. Uh, so continual tumble uh, in the iPad. I know you're an iPad fan, but uh, people are using am, their phones with big phones. I don't know if they need tablets anymore. Yeah? Oh, well, I certainly agree that the, the phone and the tablet has probably squeezed out the mini. I, I have two, and I would not buy them again. Yeah. I would and yeah. and the other thing is that I'm a big stylus person and so I'm excited that Apple may be addressing mm-hmm. that issue because yeah. none of them are any good. I have them all. And you know when I say all, I, I really do mean all. The active ones, the passive ones, the discs, the rubber mm-hmm. nubbins, I mean everything. <laughs> and the the problem is that it it seems to be from an engineering standpoint unless you give it a strong enough signal, whatever that means, just just generically, there's a long latency, like it it like it knows that it doesn't have a strong signal, and so it inputs a a a, a big smoothing filter, which which creates a smooth result, but with a lot of lag. So and it's really unnerving. Well, and in fact, a long lag smoothing filter means you can't go fast because you because it it won't catch up with you it's not like it's going to follow your path it's always looking at a lot of history and averaging it which means if you do something quickly it just does a little small nurch uh, which is the technical term um, and you don't actually get what you you know the path that you followed. So you have to you have to go really slow. And if you don't have a strong signal, if you do have a strong signal because you've got a big, you know something big on you know and and capacitive on the screen or something active you know stimulating the screen, then it's better. But none of it is any good yet. So I'm really you know I mean if we had. I always pronounce the company Wacom, but you guys are saying Wacom, as in Wacomole. So I guess look. maybe uh, I guess that's the I'll look. Somebody has, somebody sent me a a, a video where <laughs> they say how to pronounce it. <laughs> you, we know who you're talking about, Wacom Wacom. Yeah, yeah. And boy, does that! I, and in fact, I I have one of those cute little early HP tablets, the TC1100, and and that that's. Wacom or Wacom technology. There's another company whose tablet I have anyway. The, and, the, 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 you know, that technology, oh, is wonderful. I mean, it is full speed, you, you know, smooth. And, and, and so I'm, I'm assuming Apple will do it right when they do it. And just unfortunately, well, not, not necessarily unfortunately, put all the other ones out of business, you know, the early ones that they, they made their money because I'd love to have, well, in fact, you, you've talked about how much you'd like your note your your note uh, tablet, yeah, which has a your, Wacom uh, digitizer in it, yeah, yeah, and it just it just works. The thing that's missing on the Apple is, it, it, I didn't know about this uh, this lag thing. That's interesting. But the thing that's also mm-hmm. missing is that probably has to do with palm rejection and other stuff. But the thing that's also missing is uh, pressure sensitivity. So this will be interesting to see. Well, there there've been do. some interesting attempts. Uh, I have all the pressure sensitive yeah, styluses. It's weird what they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, some use sound. The earliest ones actually use ultrasonic sound, which the microphone could hear. 
And so as you change the pressure on the stylus, you can't hear it. But the micro, the the tab, you know, the, the iPad's own microphone is picking up a signal ultrasonically telling it how hard you're pressing. And then the newer ones use Bluetooth in order to, to communicate pressure through through Bluetooth. And I imagine that's probably what Apple will do uh, when they want pressure sensitivity. And like you, I don't care about that. I just, I mean, not only do I not need 1024 levels, two would be just fine, you know, down and up. But I'm sure they're going to do it more for, you know, yeah, it's for also artists, serve. not for us. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, but, you know, you they know. could actually put a digitizer in the screen. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, they could put a pressure-sensitive yeah. digitizer in there. and then So this is a little interesting. I'm not sure exactly what this means because some of the terminology is a little soft. But uh, we do know that uh, Apple's Tim Cook, CEO, met with executives or representatives from China's so-called state internet information office and apple has agreed to allow china to to cooperate in china's audits of their iphone ipad and maybe just those two things i don't know if it was the mac um but their consumer level products um in order to assure themselves that is china that there's no spying going on. Um, uh, T- Tim Cook reportedly told the these executives that Apple products do not give data to third parties, uh, uh, saying we did not and will not provide a backdoor. And um, and, and then uh, the the director of the department said the Chinese government needs to draw its own conclusions so that our consumers uh, will be assured. So it's funny. There's a certain amount of irony in that Apple has put privacy in its products to make the Chinese happy. <laughs> yeah. There's a little irony there. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, Apple's earnings, uh, 75, almost, well, $74.5 billion, up 30% year over year. Big quarter. We knew that would be seventy-five yeah. million, seventy-four point four million iPhones sold. The post-Christmas iPhones. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. it is the Christmas. It's actually their Christmas quarter. So right. It's their their big quarter. So. Wow. Nice. Yeah, and it was funny to to hear you guys talk about the amount of um of uh, iTunes store app sales immediately following because of course everyone. Huh? Yeah, half buying. a billion in the first week of January. Half a billion dollars worth of sales? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, and for people who used to love the Opera browser, uh, one of the co-founders of Opera, Lord knows what he paid for this website or they, uh, Vivaldi.com is their site. V-I-V-A-L-D-I.com. And actually, Vivaldi is one of my favorite classical uh, composers. Uh, very pleasant, relaxing music. Um, that's the name of the new browser. Uh, it will run on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Uh, it uses uh, one of the nice products of Google's work. It uses the Chromium Blink rendering engine. So we're past the point where it's really feasible for someone to start from scratch and build a rendering engine. You unless, just you're can't. As, unless you're as big as Microsoft. But, uh, but any, any normal company, yeah. 
Well, and do you think Microsoft rebuilt their rendering engine, or do you think they just basically... You know, I've heard conflicting the- reports for this new uh, Project Spartan, the new browser for yeah. Windows 10. At first, Mary Jo and Paul said, no, it's the same rendering engine. But I just saw a report today that they've written a new one from scratch. So I don't know. I and don't know. one also wonders how much from scratch it is. Right. Given that there's so much open source, really good rendering engine technology Remember that there was some question when Microsoft announced that they'd come out with a brand new uh, internetworking stack for, I think it was Windows 2000. It bore some strange resemblances to the FreeBSD stack, which was <laughs> highly regarded at the time. It's like, okay. Yeah, why yeah. write a new I mean, stack, really? Come why, on. Really, why would you? Now, right. as Microsoft, you really can't fess up to that, but, you know, you, so you makes you scramble it up and change a lot of variable names and things and say oh yeah yeah this is oh in fact it had some similar bugs oh see that's the giveaway it yeah the bugs are the same (laughs) yeah so have you tried Vivaldi? what do you think i haven't um um i like what they said uh and and the way they characterized it was you know we're not creating all new guts because why would you? Guts are done. Right. What we care about is the user's experience. And they're deliberately aiming this up market to our kind of listeners, to power users. Mm. Um, they have an, an interesting tab combining feature that allows for economizing on tab real estate consumption when you're like doing research within a given area there there's a way to combine it apparently it is heavily keyboard oriented so lots of shortcuts so power users can use the keyboard to jump around within this browser and get a lot of fast work done and there was something that i thought okay well this is not exactly this reminds me of you know tv screens i'm seeing now where the you know the the it figures out the overall coloration on the screen and then backlights the the t- the TV screen sort of you know to give your living room that color well this unfortunately sort of fades the chrome oh. to the yeah i know it oh. fades the the coloration of the ui to fit the page that you're viewing it's like well in that case it's going to be white whenever you're at grc.com <laughs> Because no, it all looks like my it's still pages. black. I'm glad. I'm glad to see. I'm on. This is <laughs> Vivaldi rendering. I, you know, you got to always chest test your page to see. Uh, yeah, looks all right. Looks pretty good. Um, let's see. Yeah, the menu works, and, yeah. Uh, and yeah, your yeah. stuff's all there. Well, of course it is. Steve, yeah. well, Steve I, wouldn't make a bad site. No, I've got. I've got simple HTML. Yeah, I got HTML yeah. from the from. The, in fact, I have embarrassing HTML <laughs> from the from the from the early days. Yeah. I just need to. I, I know it's, stuff's there and it works. Even though I could go back and add, you know, all my new pages use CSS extensively, but the old ones are still there and they still render, thankfully. So anyway, for for people who loved Opera, Vivaldi dot com. Uh, it's in it's the, it's at technical preview level now. Uh, things like sync and mail and extensions are coming soon. So, you know, it's still, it's not there. It's not finished. But, uh, it, you know, for, if, if if somebody wants another another browser, I'm, again, I, I'm not sure why. But, you know, but, you know, for, for, for the features that it offers, it might be uh, the, the thing for you. It's pretty clean. It's pretty clean. 
So I will just say, because there it's here in my notes, uh, podcastawards.com. Voting is not open yet, but it's, it's only right now it's nominations. Uh, and I'm sure enough people have, have put security now in nominations that we will be there. But for what it's worth, for people who want to make me happy, uh, podcastawards.com can nominate Security Now, I think, for science, technology, and education categories. And when voting opens, I will let you know again because it would be fun just to sort of show the, yeah. some, 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 some feedback from our listeners. And then all you uh, have to do for the podcast URL is either use grc.com or twit.tv. Either one would be fine. Oh, in fact, it's funny. I saw a tweet. Someone, all, all they tweeted was uh, grc.com or twit.tv. Oh, they must be talking about thought, this. Yeah. Yes. It, it, until you mentioned that, I didn't know what they were tweeting. It's like, uh, what's the question? Uh, so, Yeah. That's you, you exactly might, what. Let's see. Please type something in the name text field. Yeah. Please type something in the email. Oh, I see. I have to give them my name and address. Okay. Well, there you I go. I think it ought to be twit.tv. I mean, that's, well, you know, it's they, your net, if it's depends your what network. they want is if they want a feed address or if they want just well, the they website know. address. <laughs> if you, I mean, if you put security now, there's no one who doesn't know what that is anymore. So. I used to look at how many hits I got on Google uh, back, you know, <laughs> nine years ago. I, you know, we sort of. I think just, it. yes, just do it. Podcastawards.com. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. So I, got, I, I just wanted to close the loop and note that people who watched Automata that I referred to a couple of weeks ago really liked it. That was the, the funky, um, God, I keep thinking Claude Van Damme, but uh, it's not. It's the other guy. <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, interesting robots and sci-fi that that uh, that you'll remember. I said sort of was haunting. It had me thinking about it for days afterwards. Bunch of people did watch it and loved it. So I have another suggestion. What's happened is that with all this Super Bowl stuff, my normal Sunday program has been wiped out for the last few weeks. So I've been poking around my Amazon Fire TV thing looking at you know looking for something to watch and so i i've been seeing things i've been watching things i normally wouldn't a sh a, another movie that just came out uh storing starring ethan hawk is predestination it got a 7.5 out of 10 on imdb which is pretty respectable rotten tomatoes gave it an 80 which is surprising and metacritic gave it a 68 um it's about a little over an hour and a half long uh, and it's based on a short story, as are many good sci-fi movies, by Robert A. Heinlein, for, of course, a famous classic sci-fi author. And it's funny because when I knew – I didn't know that he'd written it until after – until it was scrolling through the credits afterwards. And I sort of thought, okay, because, I mean, it, if you've read much of Robert A. Heinlein's stuff, it, it's absolutely written by him. Um, it is a extremely complicated time travel story um, that where when you're done, you're like, whoa. And then and then the fact that it was contrived, you kind of can forgive it because that's the way Robert's stuff tends to be. Um, 
But it was a good piece. I mean, a very convoluted, paradox-filled time travel story, exactly the kind that he would write. And it's a movie called Predestination. So I liked it. And, uh, and, I, and I think our, our listeners will too. So a little, a little uh, heads up and, and thumbs up on the sci-fi front. And just yesterday, on January 26th, a Bruce Young, who, whose title is Department Adjutant at the uh, Oregon's Department for Disabled American Veterans, sent email to Sue because he didn't have another address with the subject, Spinrite is a great product. Um, and he wrote, I'm a computer professional. And I've owned the current version of Spinrite since version 2.0 for my home PCs. And he says, Perens, yeah, I'm that old. It's like, hey, Bruce is all right. I wrote it. Uh, so I'm... You were there since <laughs> 1.0. I'm, I'm at least that old. And he says, I've restored several dozen dead, in quotes, systems with this invaluable tool. Most recently a four-year-old HP laptop that would hardly boot. And any time a check disk of my PC supposedly fixes, he has in quotes, a drive, I run Spinrite on it and the problem goes away. Sure, it takes a while to run. But if I kick it off before bed, even the biggest troubled hard drive is finished by the time I get home from work. And lest anyone think this tool is for techies only, the interface is easy enough to use that any computer owner can run it. Anytime you need a beta tester for a new version, look me up. I'm ready. Thanks. And Bruce, thank you for uh, shooting that to Sue. She sent it to me, and I get to share it with our listeners. Isn't that nice? We'll take a break. When we come back, we got questions. Steve's got answers. Our Q&A, 205 in an ongoing wow. series. <laughs> wow, is right. Well, when you've been doing this for 10 years, you know. Yeah. Our show today brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. When it comes to data protection, Carbonite means business. Whether you have one computer at home or several in your small business, there's no better place to go than Carbonite.com for backup. Plus, you can access your files anytime, anywhere with the Carbonite apps free on all the platforms. With Carbonite, all your computers, all your servers, all your external hard drives will be backed up to the cloud for you automatically. That is such nice peace of mind. Now, if you go to Carbonite.com, you'll see they have business plans and personal plans. In fact, I'd get one for uh, home and office. Uh, that's what we do. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. You don't need to give them a credit card to try it for free. And when you use the offer code security now on the trial... You'll get two free bonus months on any of these when you decide to buy. Take a look at what Carbonite can do for you. Uh, a cloud backup, everybody knows it's the best. Carbonite's nice because it's automatic. Once you install Carbonite on your computer, it's as little, by the way, as $59.99 a year for every a year for everything on a single Mac or PC. It's backing up. As long as you're connected to the cloud, it's backing up. So your data is safe. You can get to it anytime. I love it. Carbonite.com. Try it today. Just make sure you use the offer code security now to get two free months with purchase. You got to back it up to get it back. Do it right. Carbonite. 
We have no backup for you, Steve Gibson. I don't know. I I just realized we ought to we ought to put you uh, clone you somewhere on uh, the Carbonite Cloud in case we we lose you. Yeah, I would like to be cloned <laughs> just so so I can get more done. I need two of you. Yeah. So, um, but then, but then the, pro- the problem is, then we would argue because we would both want to be doing everything. So I don't actually think <laughs> that would work because I, the, 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 my biggest problem when I had more employees and like a development group yeah. was that they were ge- they were getting to have the fun of writing the code, and I was sort of you know the puppet master. And I don't I don't want to be the puppet. I want to you know. Wait a minute, you want to be the puppet, st- not the puppet master. Yeah, I don't want to be a puppet master. I want to get to. I want to do the work. But you know, cut 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 the strings and I'll. Oh, I just... see. You don't want to do the management stuff. Oh, I don't blame right. you on that. God, that's right. That is no fun. That is a thankless task. But see, you didn't do it right. The whole point for me of uh, of getting uh, a staff was so I would do the stuff I liked, and they would do the stuff that I didn't want. And that do. is that is now my world. I have Greg for tech support, and I have Sue for the books. Yeah, and it's like thank you yeah. very much. So I hired editors. Yep. money people, HR people, that kind of stuff. So I don't have to worry about that. Yep. Anyway, we got questions. You got answers. Women. Now I've, I've installed the Mac update. <laughs> now I'm rebooting the machine. Let me uh, let me pull the questions up here. Uh, question one from Jay McGee in Washington D.C. He wonders about this Elaine transcription service we use, Steve. <laughs> Mr. Gibson, I have a need for a transcription specialist for a few videos. Could you forward me to your transcription specialist so I could send some business her way? Thank you. So uh, we we talk about Elaine all the time. Elaine Ferris. Never, Elaine Ferris. Now, her contact information has changed over the course of this. I I just found her by Googling, like, I don't know what, audio transcription and... There were a few there, but hers was the only one that had an online form that I was able to sort of fill out and ask a question. And she got back to me, and then I found out, you know, not only was she a transcriber, but she was the transcriber. I mean, she did, she like transcribes medical conferences where all of the terminology is is like she gets it correct. And she heavily uses Google to like research things. I know that because... Every so often I'll get email back from her while she's working on the transcription saying, okay, you said this and you and Leah were talking at the same time. And this is, you know, at this minute, this hour and minute into the podcast, what was that? <laughs> I mean, so she really cares. That's and nice. so uh, it's fabulous. So she used to be on hyphen sitemedia.com. But she now, she, she now that's like formerly known as, she now calls herself eDigitalTranscription.com. All one phrase, eDigitalTranscription.com. So that's where you can find Elaine. All that online stuff is still there. So you can send her email. You can click on a form and fill it out. You, she has a .mobi version, so eDigitalTranscription.mobi for her mobile version of the website. Uh, and and as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, I could not over-recommend her. I mean, I can't overstate what, what you know, it means uh, to, to use her. Um, 
She's not the cheapest solution there is, but she is the best. And, you know, that fits me. It's, it suits uh, my needs and, and the needs for this podcast. So any, yeah, anything technical um, or even if you just want them right, if you want them done right, edigitaltranscription.com. Very good. Now, we, by the way, other shows are transcribed on this network and we use a different service, which I just asked. I just ran out in the uh, studio and said, who knows who does our transcriptions? And nobody knew. <laughs> so, uh, good. Yeah, Elaine. so Elaine. <laughs> uh, but no, this is a service that's been doing not all of our shows, but I think about half of our shows now. Uh, inspired by you and Elaine, uh, we decided we ought to have uh, transcriptions. Well, um, it makes audio and video podcasts searchable. That's a big and that's deal. So, yeah. yeah. That's the main reason we do it. Our uh, next question from Elliot Kovacs, a 12-year-old listener in Wellesley, Mass., I love security now, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. On a previous episode, you said printers leave a watermark on paper. I was wondering if there was a way to see this watermark. I hope I get on security now, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I'll just call them bangs from now on. Bang, 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 bang. I'm only 12 years old and I'm very interested in security. Thank you, Elliot Kovacs. The end. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, it is the case. They're invisible, uh, this, right? They're not. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, they're not invisible. They're just very hard to see because they're yellow. Ah. So, co color laser printers use deliberately on every page they put out, put yellow dots on, like, on the paper. And the problem is you, you have to get a jeweler's loop and good illumination and just sit there, you know, looking for yellow dots. I'm not sure that a scanner, unless it was maybe a very high-resolution scanner specifically looking for isolated yellow dots could find them. But the, the, the point is they're just not visible to the naked eye. A, you know, they, the resolution of today's color laser printers is so high that the dot is very small. And yellow is just not that different from white. So you have to just look for them. But if you do, you will find them. And you'll think, oh, it's just some dust. No, that was put there on purpose. That is the serial number of the printer which printed that page. And I remember it sort of surprised everyone when this came to light. It was like, what? My printer is tattling on me. It's marking everything I print for, like, who knows why. Well, but, I can oh. tell you why. It's law enforcement. Yeah. So they've been able for years, you could always tell which type, you know, you could match a typewriter up. Yeah, in the old... so non-uniform. Right. The, a, a mechanical typewriter, you're right. right. Every single one, very much like a fingerprint, yeah. would have slightly different characteristics. So I'm sure when laser printing became popular... Law enforcement went to the companies and said, hey, would you mind just putting a serial number on there, invisible, just in case? Yeah. What can you do and, you for know, us? I don't think there's any harm to that. If you no. Google a laser printer watermarks, you'll see close-up pictures of the yellow dots. Um, but I, I suspect law enforcement knows exactly where to look and how to find yeah. that, right? It's probably in the same I place think. on the page and all of that. Exactly. And uh, – our podcast, our uh, transcription service. Oh, no, I forgot. I think it was Rich Hall at Perfect Security does the other podcasts. 
I don't know what the story is with that, but there you go. He's our transcriptionist for the other shows. Question three, an anonymous listener wonders, how do I get started in crypto programming? <laughs> well, you, you first, first part's right, anonymous, good start. I'm interested in crypto programming. I just don't know where to start since there are tons of tutorials on the web. I don't know where I should focus, which algorithm. I'm asking if you could point me in the right direction to somewhere I can learn how to program crypto properly. Thank you. So the guru is Bruce Schneier. And, and I say that because he not only understands it, but he's a good teacher as well. And behind me, um, I am, let's see, nope, there. Uh, right there, there. That is a copy <laughs> of the book. That's the one you want. It's Bruce's first book, um, Applied Cryptography. Wow. At, I pulled it off the shelf and literally somehow it acquired dust, even though there's a shelf right above it, and dusted it off. And just sort of flipped through it again to make sure that's the one I wanted to recommend. And oh my goodness, it is so good. So Applied Cryptography by Bruce Schneier. That's the one. Now, he's done several since. There's, I think he did an Applied Cryptography and he did something about secrets and lies or something. He's done some others which are sort of more about the environment in which crypto is used and 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 some and applied cryptography is a little more of a cookbook but this is the one you want applied cryptography because it is soup to nuts it is across the board it shows diagrams of all the algorithms talks about hashes talks about ciphers symmetric and public key i mean it it is sort of the introductory bible for somebody who wants a good foundation in in crypto so I recommend it without reservation. It's not inexpensive, um, but if you, you know, and so I'm sure there are tutorials on the web that are free. Uh, maybe they're worth what you pay for them. Um, in this case, it absolutely is. It is, it, it, that's the book. And of course, Bruce is still very active uh, talking about security and crypto. He's got a great website, uh, schneier.com, S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R, I think, .com. And, um, you know, we refer to him, Schneier on security, we refer to him all the time. He's just a great guy. He's been on yep. Twit. And, uh, he does a great, he does a great blog. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I'm seeing him catching a lot of media now. I, I'm seeing oh, him being interviewed. On, yeah. 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 I just, I just think so highly of him. And if you click his books link, uh, you'll see all his books and you can, uh, you can buy the, uh, the books uh, directly through him, get him a little extra money. Uh, but practical cryptography is there still? Uh, still, it came out in two thousand three, but still on. Uh... Wait, but uh, that's different than oh, applied. Not, oh, and, applied, not practical. Applied. Yeah, there, there it is. It is. There, there's there's a, it's, it's, it's that dark red 1996. one. Nineteen ninety six. Yep, available on uh, on Amazon in hardcover and paperback. Get it, it is just, today. It, it is just really, really good. It is a great book. And it's, it's the C, one. So you can you actually get code there, right? There's a lot. Of, there, yes, there's a lot of code toward the back of the book, but mostly, again, it's it's it is completely readable and understandable. It it it, it is it's what you want if you want to just learn. And it's it's funny because you know we've talked about how 
slowly this stuff moves, even though that book itself was written some time ago. The, the edition I have is the second edition. I don't know if, if, it is, if there are more recent editions, but everything is still germane. I mean, because this stuff moves pretty slowly. So that, that's the one, Applied Cryptography. I was looking for my copy. I have it here somewhere. Not that I would understand a word of it. 1996 is the second edition. Still good. It really is. Uh, Question four from Michael Zimmerman in Sydney. He's not alone in asking this about uh, extra keys and all of that. Hi, Stephen Leo. Just finished watching Security Now 491 with your explanation of how, if mandated, a government backdoor could could be provided using additional public keys... Uh, to encrypt the random key used to encrypt the payload. This all makes sense, and I think we've seen the same idea used to provide the ability to change mastered passwords or provide temporary access, such as application password uh, access. My concern among several is this is impractical to implement. Let me me put this up on the screen because it's such a long question. I want to let you all, at least those of you watching on video, Read along with me. Read along. Yeah. You've described the problem using iMessage as an example, but any legal crypto software could be inserted here. I want to send my message to Stephen Leo, and maybe the message is high, or maybe it's my copy of War and Peace. The message is encrypted with a random key, and a header is it well, not exactly a random key, but anyway, we'll, and a header is attached with Steve's encrypted version of the key. We also attach a header with Leo's encrypted version of the key. Now, the government insists on access, so there's another header attached. The problem is, who is the government, and how will the software know? I'm in Australia. Steve is visiting the U.K. Prime Minister, Mr. Cameron. Leo's on a cruise. This is very accurate. Currently passing Korea and China. According to Google, there are 196 countries in the world. Maybe I should have asked how many governments. We know that every one of them will want to be in on the action. The list of additional headers will spiral out of control, just like the list of CAs, any one of which can be used to decrypt the payload. Which one of them will be the weak link? Maybe the what's-the-name-mia official with a gambling debt opened offers from anyone. And if there were only one additional header key for the central controlling government body, who would administer that body and who would deal with all the countries requesting to decrypt the header? Sure, my house is safe, and I have a front door key, but now my house has 100 96 separate front doors. All the best, Michael. He's describing one possible implementation, not necessarily the one that would be involved. Correct. And in fact, I will will wrap up this with question 10 where I'm going to I'm going to uh submit what I imagine would be the the actual implementation. And and but I I include included this because many people we're a little thrown off by this last week, so I wanted to make I wanted just to make it clear that my intention wasn't to suggest that that this is the way it would be done, but that doing something wasn't weakening the crypto. That was my, my the entire focus was to say that there there are you know I guess there are two meanings of the term backdoor. It can mean that there is that the cipher is broken, that is is not is, is doesn't have its integrity in a way that 
most people don't know. And so that it's lack of integrity, very much like a broken random number generator that is subtly broken, but no one can detect it. But the people who know about the way it's not quite as random as we want, they're able to leverage that fact. That That's a perfect example of a defective cipher backdoor. Then, and so I wanted to make that distinct from the concept of the way multiple keys can be and are being used to create essentially, as Michael does say, you know, multiple front doors that you can, you know, without, it doesn't require weakening the crypto in any way to give, to, to create a means for, um, for something like a mandated decryptability of content. So, so anyway, so I, I, I wanted to clear that up because many people responded as Michael did. I just chose his from, you know, among, among a, a bunch. Um, I, I wasn't saying that I expected this would be the implementation, but just that there could be an implementation that actually didn't weaken the cipher um, although you could argue, and, and, and as we brought this up last week, when you tell somebody a secret, it's not a secret anymore, right. e- even one person. I mean, you don't have to look too far to find uh, the the actual NSA technology, which is in use today, called Skipjack, which is a key escrow system yep. d- designed ex- to do exactly what they want. Right. Um, well, I think talk about that later. Uh, going to question five, John T. in Queensland, sunny coast. Doesn't think there are trivial true positives. See, in 489, a sysadmin explained they allow malware to enter their networks and then hope that host <laughs> and hope that host-based AV will clean up the damage. Well, that guy's crazy. Having worked in IT InfoSec for over 20 years in both management and admin roles, my first policy rule on any corporate proxy is to block executables, period. No executables ever. That, in conjunction with a proxy-based AV scanning, will block the majority of known malware at the gateway instead of allowing it to be picked up and addressed by the host. If the AV signatures on a host can detect the malware, then it's likely that a proxy would also be able to do so, as they tend to be more powerful, have multiple AV rule scanning engines, and be more current than the hosts. Indeed, this process has become more difficult over the past few years as sites move to SSL, where an enforced man in the middle is required by the proxy to break open SSL traffic and scan it for executable malware content. But it's the only way for corporate networks to remain safe in this century. Regards, John, a long, long time listener. <laughs> so I just wanted to uh, present that counterpoint to uh, the, the notion that we uh, talked about before of of local hosts cleaning things up. This is maybe that's an approach, uh, not the one that John suggests. And, and I, you know, I was the sort of uh, was brought to the fore for me because about a week ago, uh, someone wrote to a, a Spinrite user wrote to Greg saying that he had, I don't, I don't if I think it was an original PC XT or he had a really old system and neither Spinrite 6 nor Spinrite 5 would run on it. Could he get a copy of four? And what what has happened is over the years, some some really tasty opcodes 
that I've wanted, like bite swap, uh, allows you to swap the bites um, in a single instruction. Um, and the original chip the, the, in the PC didn't have it. And But when the world had, all, had moved to 386s, uh, I waited a while. You know me. I mean, I like waited a decade. <laughs> and then I said, okay, it's, it's safe for me to use a byte swap instruction on the PC. But not if you actually do have an 8088 or a 286. Anyway, the point is that I said he was a Spinrite owner. I sent him a copy of Spinrite 3.1, which I was absolutely sure would still run on an original, you know, 4.77 megahertz 8088. I couldn't get it to him. I kept trying. I, you know, I zipped it. I encrypted it. I did everything I could. And whatever he had that was, you know, it just, they all, the email just bounced. I could not mail it. So finally, I, I gave it a quiet place to live on my server and I sent him a link and I said, okay, I give up. I can't get this to you. Here, you go, go get it yourself. And then as soon as he told me that he received it, I, I removed it. But boy, it is not easy to get anything executable into someone's network these days. As it, as it should be. Correct. It wasn't malicious, but, uh, you know, quite the reverse. But still, he was well protected. And, uh, you know, I'm, and that's, uh, that's the way it has to be. Yeah. So if you had zipped it or somehow uh, obfuscated I did. it, it didn't. This thing it, looked in the zip. It, it saw that it, that's yeah. So <laughs> I did. Well you know, I, I even zipped it with the password, and it's like because that's supposed to encrypt it so that you can't see. But maybe it looked at the table of contents. I don't know what it did, but anyway, it's, it's I know still. what you could have done because nobody would do. If you base sixty four it, if you encoded it, <laughs> it would just look like you know random text. Then paste it yeah. into the message and say unbase sixty four this, and you'll find yeah. it executable. That would have worked. Naif Al Rabi. Al-Harbi in Saudi Arabia wonders about the safety of renewing a certificate. Stephen Leo, uh, Security Now listener since December 2012, really enjoyed learning and listening from you. I am wondering, is it safe to renew a certificate rather than requesting a new certificate? I know that making a new certificate is much more involved, but I feel it's more secure. Now that's interesting. It's something we've uh, in all the of all of the time we've been talking about certificates, this has never come up. So, I love the question. What he's talking about is the issue of rekeying when you renew. And it is a choice. Um so we have a certificate and remember that us what a certificate is is our public key which is signed by a certificate authority with an expiration date. So, and, and we know why expiration dates are, are important because certificates can be bad and we may have to blacklist them, but by having it expire, that self blacklists, meaning that the blacklists don't have to be forever. They only have to be with some slack outside of the expiration date then we can we can prune off of the revocation so you know the the CRL the certificate revocation list the the you know the, you know any management only has to live past the certificate's own self demise so that means that every few years you need it renewed now it isn't technically necessary 
to for the the owner of the site to generate a new key pair. It's certainly possible, and I've done this in certain circumstances, and I'll explain, to simply have the existing certificate, that is the existing public key, re-signed and then redated. So you can do that. And so all that's really happening is that you're saying we're taking the existing the existing public key and and automatically the secret private key and we're saying as far as we know they're still good they're still they got they have enough bits in them to be as secure as we need them to be for the expected lifetime of the of the, of the certificate which is never more than 3 years so i don't feel like going through all the hassle of generating a new key pair, let's just update the signature, re-sign it, and give me a few more years on the existing key pair. Okay, the general feeling is, if you re-key and don't exchange, don't um, extend the expiration, that's always okay. And there are ways you might want to do it. For example, I recently rekeyed my certs so that and brought the expiration down to the end of 2015 because I want to stay with SHA1 to help people get to GRC.com because you can only get to my website in any way now over TLS. So I want I I, I rekeyed it short and I did. Key, uh, I'm sorry, I re-signed, I had Digicert re-sign my certificate with a, sh- a tighter expiration using the existing key. I, I didn't re-key the cert. And they also gave me an SHA-256 cert on the original expiration schedule, which was, in I think, in 2016 or, or 17. So, so the idea is that's you you can say that's entirely reasonable because then the the time horizon of your original public and private key pair hasn't been extended now it is the case that you could argue hey these 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 public and private key pairs are strong enough that we're not we're not retiring them because we think they're weak. We're retiring them just for the whole certificate hierarchy system. Um, I think it's probably wiser just as a matter of practice. It's only every couple of years to have your server generate a new public key pair so that, I mean, th- the danger would be that somebody could be working away in the background trying to factor your public key. Uh, you know, we know that's not really going to be a problem because it's secure enough. But the effect of rekeying is to take that public key out of service at the same time that you renew your certificate with a new expiration date, thus foiling any background long-term project of trying to crack your key, which again no one's really worrying about because we got way more strength than we need so it's sort of a toss up if you're for example say that you 
you were had a blogging site with low value to security. You were just going SSL or TLS because you wanted to, but you, there were there were not hugely valuable crown jewels being protected. Eh, then, if it was inconvenient to rekey, you could just have the CA resign the existing key, and you're good to go for another two or three years. Um, on high value sites, eh, I would say probably worth rekeying. But that is something we've never discussed. And it's interesting that you that people have a choice, especially if you got a great CA like I do with DigiCert. Lee Whitfield at 32.924.112, negative 96.765.4598, which of course some of you may know is Dallas, Texas, offers additional insight into Crypto Wall 2. Steve, great show, sadly. I sometimes just don't have time to get to the episodes for several weeks. This is one of those occasions. Uh, episode 489, you discussed uh, Crypto Wall 2. I've had the chance to conduct forensic investigations on these systems and have something additional to share. Either way, Crypto Wall is becoming more and more difficult to stop from propagating. Yes, you can get Crypto Wall from clicking on links in your email, from specially crafted PDFs and office files. But there's an additional reason this iteration is so bad. You don't have to click on anything for this to run. The guys that made Crypto Wall 2 were able to distribute it via ad networks, including Yahoo's own ad platform. If you have a web browser that allows the auto-playing of Flash content, and you happen to visit a perfectly good site that happened to contain a bad Flash ad, you could become infected. And on top of that, to avoid detection and discovery, the keys are issued via servers on the Tor network. This means it's difficult, or virtually impossible, to track these people down. Wow! And... Yeah. Um, so again, you know, we know that there are two essential, uh, well, mitigations. Uh, one is there's no substitute for using a sponsor of this podcast who you were talking about a few minutes ago, Leo, uh, getting yourself backed up. You, you, because if this thing gets into your system, all the files you care about are encrypted and you will, the, unless you have a current backup, you will be paying somebody to get your files decrypted. The good news is they're pretty good about doing it because they want the reputation of you pay them, you get your files back. So from 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 the the things I've been seeing on the internet, it's like you know they'll they'll go to extremes. I've even seen situations where somebody for for some reason is unable to provide them their money or the money transfer didn't work, and they established a dialogue with these. Cretans and were able to get compassion from them, at least to the extent of the of arranging for them to accept the payment. So, so the first is, you know, there's no substitute for having a, a backup of the content. And as we learned, uh, uh, I guess it was last week or the week before, a non-admin user can get recovered from from Windows' own rec prior records of the changed files. So if you are running as a non-privileged, just, just a regular or standard user, then CryptoWall is unable to read because it runs as you uh, at the time it is it, it, of the infection. Uh, it is unable to reach into the, uh, the privileged admin region of your system in order to also corrupt those 
um, those incremental backups that Windows, you know, the whole system restore system that, that, that Windows is is uh, doing for people. So um, uh, I, I would say while until we come up with some sort of a solution, you need to be backed up and you really cannot run at, as a privileged user. It's, it's interesting, too. I'm I'm seeing people who are having this problem with uh, at, at the moment with my my Windows Squirrel client because you have to be an admin in order to register that scheme, the SQRL colon slash slash. Um, one of the, the features I'll be adding, it's on my to-do list of, of cosmetic stuff, is if it notices that you're not admin, it'll itself prompt you for the admin credential. Well, actually, it asks Windows to prompt you for the admin credentials so that it can briefly upgrade you in order to get permission to register that scheme. I did the same thing with... Um, that freeware, uh, Securable. Securable had to have admin privileges in order to install a driver in order to access the chips registers to do the stuff that Securable does. And I, and I had it. I, I, you know, it prompts you. It has Windows prompt you for the credentials in order to give it permission. So the good news is people are hitting this problem because they are running as a non-admin account. That's a problem you want to hit because you want to be running non-admin. So you could right-click on the Squirrel program and say run as administrator Yes, just for that all, one time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and if you don't and, it, and, and Squirrel sees that it's unable to, to tweak the registry as it needs to, then it says, uh, uh, you know, give me a handout. Yeah. Give me a hand. Matt in London with our question eight wonders how good Enigma really was. Steve, you threw some figures around about how many combinations there were on a three-wheel Enigma device. But how did, what is that compared to a modern computer? Like when you compared Squirrel's master key to the chance of the world ending every 11 seconds. How long would Enigma take to brute force on, say, a Pentium 100 or a 2 gigahertz quad core? Well, in fact, Many they, people- they built a mechanical machine to do it well yes the 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 bomba was a mechanical machine and far slower slower than any any uh, electronic computer would be vastly slower Uh, and so and many people wondered how does enigma's cryptography compare to contemporary crypto and uh, unfortunately i mean it was good for world war ii we would cut through it like butter i mean just not not even a sneeze um, so, you know, current crypto uh, technology would just laugh this off, wouldn't, wouldn't even pause to crack the Enigma cipher. We, we've come so far. One of the reasons is that it just actually wasn't that complex. We did discuss how, for example, a state-of-the-art crypto like AES operates on, um, on this podcast, and I was able to explain it to people. But the nature of the way it works is vastly different from being a polyalphabetic cipher, which is all that Enigma was. We, I mean, we don't, you know, you, you, you crack polyalphabetic ciphers in your first week of Crypto 101 in college. Yeah. So, but it was good enough. For, and that's why they changed, by the way. That's why they changed it every 24 hours. They, they knew it was crackable with brute force, even by hand you know within a certain amount of time yep so but it was good enough that's the point oh it was i mean given the the computational i mean basically they had to create 
a special purpose computer. That's what Alan Turing did was a very, I mean, for the time, so sophisticated that nobody else understood how it worked. I mean, he's like, you know, sat down and he designed a computer to a mechan electromechanical computer to specifically to crack crypto based on his understanding of the constraints that the that the cipher mechanism put on the encipherment that is there were it turns out and this this was the the stroke of genius on his part he recognizes you know the 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 the, the first the first simple thing that we talked about on the podcast was the, it immediately fell out of the design that no letter could encipher to itself the machine made that impossible so that's like a simple constraint but it turns out when you look at it much more carefully there are there's a a huge like a network of constraints and if you built a machine to to like probe this network of constraints what it would do is and this is what it was doing when it when it was like chugging away it was testing potential rotor positions against a a series of constraints and ruling them out nope that won't work nope that won't work nope that won't work and then when it when, when it would stop it was cuz it found a a series of of settings that that could function within the constraints that this bomba had been programmed for so then they would go and and text they would use one of their enigma machines and put that set of of rotors in and see if the whole cipher made sense the tiny piece they had would work but the question was does it all work and so many of these were false positives they would go back and 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 push a button that, that essentially would say okay keep searching and so it would it would start from that point and keep moving forward looking for other possible rotor configurations that met the constraints that the bomba had been programmed in the, the point is our current crypto, nah, <laughs> you know, the, the, we have technology that blasts it away. But back then, that was amazing. That was good, man. Number nine from Jonathan Blaine in western Pennsylvania reminds us that the Astaro Sophos UTM is free for home use. Steve and Leo, my wife and I have been listening to security now for about two years. Really appreciate your efforts to educate on security. About two months ago... Uh, my uh, my boss and I uh, were trying to figure out where my bandwidth was going. Actually, while trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out, my boss pointed me to the Sophos UTM saying it was similar to the pretty amazing Palo Alto systems we use for work, but was free for home use. I see from a search on GRC that Astara was a sponsor back in 2006 through 2008 and heard Leo mention recently Twit still runs the Astara firewall. It certainly isn't trivial to set up, and my family has had to bear with me as I got Netflix working properly on their various devices. But it truly is a powerful tool for the somewhat more technical group of listeners of Security Now. It would be great if you had a chance to look at the free product, and if you think it's worthy, make a mention of it on Security Now. So adventurous listeners can experiment. Perhaps we could even share rules on common issues. Thanks again for everything. Jonathan Blaine, SpinRight owner, avid listener to Security Now. And I should say, it is what I still recommend. I recommended it to a close friend of mine about a month ago. I think you recommended uh, it last week. 
I may have show. talked yeah. about the about the idea of, of taking an old PC with a couple exactly. of nicks. Yeah. And and that's the one you want is the Astaro security gateway. Uh, it's just it's it is a. I, it, it, I, I love the fact that he said it took a while to get Netflix, Netflix working properly. And that's kind of what you want. I mean, you want tight admission of stuff into your network. And it, it's, it's, you know, we know that NAP boxes, routers, uh, do sort of a, a good enough job for most things. But Astaro really goes a lot further. It is updating itself with patterns and it is checking to keep bad things from coming in, which a router has no function for doing. So I, I really, I, I like Jonathan uh, reminding me to talk, to make sure that I, that I tell people, you know, they were what, I think they were the first sponsor for the podcast, weren't they, Leo? And and they were with us they for years. They were our first uh, Twit sponsor, actually, as well as a Security ah. Now sponsor. And uh, nice guys, uh, uh, Palin Schwab, who was the guy who bought the ad, has since gone on to other companies. And of course, Sophos bought Astaro. But um, yep. we always in the ads mentioned the free version of Astaro for download. That was part of the yeah. ad. I'm glad to know it's still there, and it is. Yeah. You know, stick it on an old PC with a couple of network interfaces, and. Uh, you know, and 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 look forward to having some fun pushing. It's got a lot of buttons and switches yeah. that you can you can flip. And we do use a Star UTMs uh, throughout the, uh, the the place, and it's really Unified. been great. It makes yeah. me feel fairly secure. We don't, you know, we're safer than Sony. Gert Erickson and De- <laughs> Gert Erickson in Denmark muses about master keys to cryptographic backdoors. Dear Steve, a very interesting topic, although I have some concerns about cryptographic backdoors. For me, the two biggest reasons uh, for advocating for encryption is to ensure private communication and to make mass surveillance unfeasible for private or government organizations. Nobody would argue that. That's uh-uh. that's right. Besides the obvious concern about a second front door, my concern is there if, if there is a master key to that door, it only requires one court order and the master key to all communication in the past and future is loose. And this is only for a single country's government. This is not a very pleasant thought, particularly for a non-American like me. Also, I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure Steve will address this. In order to avoid this, I suggest that the second private public key pair is generated individually for each user account, and the private key is stored by the service or app provider, Apple or Google, then a court order will only reveal this account's communication and will not be a general master key to everything. I will very much like to hear your thoughts about this. I know there are some difficulty to generate, store, and manage individual public-private key pairs, but the alternatives are much worse. Thanks for a brilliant podcast, Gert Erickson, Copenhagen. So I promised that the last question would address this, and uh, this is the question. Um, if you've looked this at Skip, ever... You've looked at Skipjack, right? Well, yes. Um, and if this ever happens, and we can hope it doesn't, but I'm skeptical... Um, I, I think what would what would happen, the way this would actually get implemented would be sort of just turning the clock back legislatively. That is, legislation which required Apple and Google and, and essentially we, we've already established that that the cryptographic technology has already escaped. It is absolutely possible to for for two people to encipher so that nobody else can intercept their messages. We have that. 
But what would happen legislatively is that companies would who were selling products that in that that employed cryptography would be compelled to be able to respond to the the uh, FISA letters compelling them to decrypt specific communications of of their specific users or customers and that they can do all apple would have to do would be to maintain a master key and add that to every iMessage, just as right now they provide keys to the recipients of iMessage, they would add their key so that they would be sort of a ghost recipient. And so this doesn't have to leave Apple. It doesn't have to be governmental. It does, I mean, it's not, it, I, I didn't mean to imply that any other, any specific sort of structure when I was talking in in broad generalities before. Um, so, so, so I imagine if something happens, that's what it would be, is that companies, commercial entities selling products with cryptography would be required, would be what, whatever they have to do. And that would be left up to them, but they would be, instead of now saying, we can't decrypt it. Sorry, we, 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 you know, we, we don't have the keys anymore. Legislation would say, oh, that's not good enough. We, you're, if you're going to be selling crypto products, you need to be able to respond to specific orders to decrypt specific communications. And they could do that. And so we as consumers would know that rather than having things the way they have been for the last year, where Apple is like, okay, we can no longer, we can no longer crack your phone open. We're, we're explicitly saying we can't do it. Well, they used to be able to. Now they can't. Eh, they may be forced to do it again in the future. Okay. And that's, you know, yeah. I imagine there, that'll be the way You don't it have is. to guess how it would be implemented because it already has been implemented by the NSA in, yeah. in this algorithm called Skipjack, which is now since 1988 public. And you can look at it and see how they implement it. They use a key escrow strategy. Um, and, in fact, Skipjack is in uh, probably every TV uh, manufactured today. So just so you know. Yeah. The, the idea being that it'll, it'll be the, the practical way for this to happen is that the, 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 the entity that is selling a product that uses strong crypto will have to Somehow, if such legislation happened, they would have to be able to respond, not that we cannot decrypt, but, okay, here's the data that the court order required us to turn over. They, they would have to, you know, be able to comply with those orders. If, if legislation happens, that's probably the shape, the, the shape and the form. Yeah. yeah. You could also require that whenever a key is generated by any of these products, that a second key is generated, which is held in escrow by a third party, not Apple, not the NSA, then that uh, key can be turned over only on court order, that kind of thing. There's, there's, if you think about it, there's ways and ways to do this. I don't think that'll happen. I think it'll be well, the way I Well, I don't think I any said. of this will happen. That, that's all I'm saying. This is the way I think okay. it'll happen. All right. It just, I mean, it's basically just sort of turning the clock back a year. It's sort of the, that's right. the way things were before. Right. That'd be the easiest. Yeah. Uh, so, so we'll have it security. It raises issues it, because then uh, private companies have access to your stuff. So uh, a better solution would be to have an escrow system uh, 
that means Good. that the private company, neither the private government nor the government has access to it without Good court point. order. Yeah. Good point. Um, but you know what? I think this is all pie in the sky. There's no, I think, well, no, there's no political please, will to make this happen. Please, please, let's yeah. hope. Well, I don't know. There's, you know, you, the, you know it, it's the argument, you know, can we allow terrorists to have communications we cannot right. we cannot intercept it's you know that's a tough one to and then of course they yank out all the you know the pedophiles and all that right. it's like okay steve 10 and 10 <laughs> nice job yep. once again 100 percent. steve gibson is at grc.com that's where you'll find his uh his uh, great program, Spinrate, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. He also found details on Squirrel and all the other freebies he gives away all the time. He's always working on something new and interesting. Lots of information there. And, of course, 16-kilobit audio of this show and uh, transcriptions as well. GRC.com. If you have a question for next our next Q&A, a couple of shows from now, you can go to GRC.com slash feedback. Or you can tweet him because Steve's also on uh, Twitter, at SGGRC. And uh, if you follow him there, uh, I sh he always puts up lots of great stuff. And anything with that SGGRC, he seems to respond to. So, uh, you know, that's another way to ask those questions. You will find full audio and uh, video versions of this show on our website, twit.tv slash SN. Twit.tv slash SN. Uh, and, of course, wherever podcasts are aggregated. After 10 years, there's pretty much, I can't imagine of a podcast client that doesn't have security now. But you can always search for Twit and you'll find all of our shows. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Leo, a pleasure. Talk to you next week. And we'll do Detour, how to de-anonymize the Tor network, which was built specifically to provide anonymity. But it wow. uh, doesn't quite do it as well as we were hoping. That's it for Security Now. Security.